Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Racial affirmative action is stepping away from the rules of the game, those rules being non-discrimination. You don't treat people differently solely because of their race. You're not supposed to treat kids as representatives of races. You're supposed to treat them as individual persons. They're, they're not avatars. A kid is black and therefore, and therefore what? And therefore the kid is black. That's all you know. You don't know what they're interested in. You don't know how their lives have been in virtue simply of them having been black. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Glenn Lowry. Glenn, welcome to the show. Brendan, it's good to be with you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you on, to speak to you, uh, especially now there is so much happening in the US that I want to talk to you about. And it would be remiss of me, I think, not to begin with a pretty big story, one that made waves here as well, which was the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action. And essentially, the Supreme Court said it's unacceptable for race to be a factor when it comes to university admissions. And you will be well aware that this caused a bit of a meltdown in certain circles. The commentariat was up in arms. Um, They said this is the end of racial equality. Um, African-Americans will suffer enormously as a consequence of this decision. There was a really furious discussion and a furious condemnation of the Supreme Court's decision. So I want to kick off by asking you what you thought of the Supreme Court's decision and what you thought of the uh, aftermath as well in terms of what people were saying? Well, the aftermath was no surprise. Uh, We're quite polarized over here. Uh, The court is six conservative justices, three of whom were appointed by the notorious and infamous Donald J. Trump. Uh, They've overturned the Roe versus Wade precedent for uh, legalizing abortion as a right uh, in the Constitution. And now they've overturned affirmative action. There are other decisions that are controversial that this court has rendered. There will be more. So I I was not at all surprised at the uh, uproar. Um, I myself personally uh, thought the decision was long overdue. Um, I thought that the I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I should stipulate that, Uh, though I have been following this issue and related issues for, for many years. I, I thought that the legal foundation for the state of exception, which racial affirmative action represents, it's a stepping away from the rules of the game, otherwise normally understood, those rules being non-discrimination. They mean you don't treat people differently solely because of their race. Uh, the stepping away from that, which affirmative action represented, was quite an extraordinary thing, and it was uh, supported by a rel- relatively weak uh, legal foundation. Uh, the I, I won't go down too deeply into the weeds here, but just simply to say that the 1978 decision and the uh, Baki case, uh, which uh, created the 
legal framework within which this extraordinary practice of racially discriminating in the uh, decisions about selecting into college was was uh, supported by claims that the universities were pursuing in their pedagogic mission uh, the goal of diversity, which was very difficult, as Justice Roberts in his controlling opinion here in the current case said, very difficult to to measure, very difficult to quantify, to, to, to know whether or not, in fact, the claims of the benefits from diversity were actually uh, justified by the facts. And uh, that framework had been challenged. It had been challenged in uh, previous cases, and it had been held tenuously uh, to be consistent with the Constitution. But uh, the last uh, important case, 2003, involving the University of Michigan, uh, the late Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, a Republican appointee who wrote the controlling opinion, said, I hope we won't be in this business 25 years from now. Again, underscoring the fact that this is a stepping away from a framework otherwise compelling for us in terms of how we deal with race. We don't discriminate by race. That's not consistent with the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So it was long overdue. Um, it will be disruptive. Uh, I teach at Brown University. We get scores of thousands of applications. We admit 1,800 in a class. So 5% or so of the applicants are going to get a yes from us. Um, we're very selective. Uh, our test scores on average are quite high. Uh, if we were to abandon any consideration of race and simply go on academic qualification, the fraction of our entering class who are black would fall from, I don't know the exact number, ballpark 12% down to 4%. Again, these are rough guesses, not scientific estimates, but not crazy. This, this is a reasonable quantitative assessment of what would happen. Uh, that would be disruptive both for the character of the campus here, as well as for the access that African-American students have to this very narrow portal of elite selection, which these Ivy League re uh, institutions represent. So if faithfully adhered to, the court's ruling would have the consequence of reallocating the distribution of Black and Latino students across the elite campuses so as to push them more in the direction of um, more, less, less demanding and more accessible schools, schools that are at, you know, uh, in the middle of the distribution of the quality of the institutions as opposed to at the high end. Uh, the full implications of that going down the, the road are hard to fathom. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the opinion, and I won't go on too long here, Brendan, the opinion that uh, Justice Roberts produced uh, and the concurrence from Justice Clarence Thomas make what are, to my mind, absolutely compelling arguments, and I'll summarize very briefly. Roberts says, basically, you claim that you're doing this extraordinary thing in order to advance diversity and to create a diversified leadership cadres for the America. And yet, all I have to go on as to whether or not that claim is uh, being materially advanced by the discrimination that you're engaging in is your word. Uh, it's impossible to subject that claim to judicial review because it's far too vague 
to be able to assess. So that is not a narrowly tailored exception. Those are the language of the court. Narrowly tailored to meet a compelling government interest. It's quite unclear whether or not it's narrowly tailored or whether or not the interest being advanced is compelling. He says, you're not supposed to use race as a negative, only as one factor in an assessment. And yet when we look at what's happening to the Asians, there could be no doubt that it's a negative factor to be an Asian applying to one of these schools. You're therefore not consistent with the guidelines. He says, you're not supposed to treat kids as representatives of races. You're supposed to treat them as individual persons. They're, they're not avatars. You're not supposed to engage in stereotyping. A kid is black and therefore, and therefore what? And therefore the kid is black. That's all you know. You don't know what they're interested in. You don't know how their lives have been in virtue simply of them having been black. That's not consistent with our rules, treating people as if they are representatives of groups and not as individual persons. And finally, he says, this is a state of exception. These are my words, but this is what he's saying. This is a state of exception from what is otherwise a constitutional framework of non-discrimination. It's not supposed to last forever. And yet there's no end in sight here. So for all of these reasons, we find that what you're doing is inconsistent with the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and is to be prohibited. That's a very useful outline of what's happened, uh, particularly because you acknowledge that there will be disruptive consequences. But at the same time, a very interesting, important decision has been made, which upholds the idea of equality rather than the idea of judging people by their race. And I wanted to ask you what you think the affirmative action discussion tells us about the idea of equality today, because you have previously said that affirmative action offers a kind of fake equality. In fact, you said it's not so much about equality as it is about covering ass or covering ass, as we might say in the UK, um, a kind of back covering exercise. Uh, and you've just mentioned there that it had a detrimental impact on Asian American students. So on the one hand, you have Asian American students be, being discriminated against, including at places like Harvard, on the other hand, you had uh, African-American students being treated, being damned with the bigotry of, uh, of low expectations, which is how you've also described affirmative action. So it seems to me that either way you look at this, it's not equality in, in the way we might traditionally have understood it. So what do you think this discussion tells us about people's misunderstanding of the idea of equality today? Well, this is one of my pet peeves about affirmative action, frankly. Uh, that is patronizing, that it tacitly presumes that the Blacks uh, are not uh, able to compete effectively according to universal standards and that therefore they have to be treated differently. Uh, and that it creates a, a situation in which candor and an honest assessment of what's going on is uh, hard to find. People have to lie. They, they have to cover up. I mean, I'll, I'll be brief here, but I, I want to say this in some detail. Uh, we're talking about at a Harvard, at a University of North Carolina, at the University of Michigan, at UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, or other such elite campuses, at Cornell, a Rice University, uh, and so on. We're, we're talking about the far right tail of the distribution of intellectual ability in the population. That's the target population for these places. They are selective, they are elite. 
the intellectual work is demanding in the sciences, in the humanities, in the social sciences, in the arts. These are the best and the brightest. Now, if you use a different, and we're not talking marginally different, uh, you know, on a uh, combined score on the verbal and the math of the uh, scholastic aptitude test, the SAT, uh, 800 is the most you can get on anyone, 1600 on the combined. You know, you're talking about the average scores in the 1500s for the kids who are being selected to come into these places. And you're talking about the average score for the black kids to be coming into these places in the 12 to 1300 range, if you're lucky. That's a huge disparity. You can't tell me I've been teaching in colleges and universities for 40 years that 200 or 300 point difference on average on the SAT does not reflect in the uh, quality of the papers and in the uh, level of intellectual work that will be done after the admissions has taken place. You're admitting radically different populations in terms of their academic accomplishments when they're coming in. So what does that mean? It means that in the science and engineering uh, uh, departments, you're going to see relatively few African-Americans. And it means that in other places in the university where you are seeing the African-Americans, you're going to observe differences in their levels of performance. What do we do when we see those differences in their levels of performance? Are we honest about it? Are, is there remediation? Is there an acknowledgement of the need of students for supports and so on? No, there's a pretense that there's nothing going on here. There's nothing to see here. One anecdote. This is law school, not college, but the court's ruling applies across the board. Georgetown Law Center had a big controversy a couple of years ago when a lecturer was heard speaking into a Skype or Zoom uh, recording that she did not realize was still running to lament that in her class, a negotiations class where the students write exams, unfortunately, she was quite upset about it. The vast majority of the students at the bottom of her class were black. She, it was noticeable. She could, you know, she, she says it happens the same way year in, year out. She lamented. This was uh, discovered, broadcast on Twitter by one of the students who alleged that a racist professor is saying these kinds of things. This woman, Sandra Sellers is her name, Georgetown Law Center. This is easily to, easy to look up, was fired. She was fired by Georgetown Law for the, quote, racist commentary that she was making. Of course, all she was doing was reporting a fact about the uh, intellectual preparation of the people who were her charges and how the affirmative action policy, she didn't mention affirmative action, but it's clear that this is what's at the root of it, had created this circumstance ex post facto. So, so that's not equality. That, that, that that's a, a kind of pat on the head. That, 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 that's, as I said, a kind of acknowledgement that uh, the, uh, the Blacks whom you're seeking to benefit here are, can't be expected to perform like everybody else. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that I'd mention is that uh, the, if you look at the data in the Harvard case, which we only have because of a lawsuit, the, the institutions are not forthcoming. They're not open about what they're doing. We know that uh, if you stratify students by their uh, academic qualification of the application and you look at the likelihood that they're going to be admitted, 
conditional on their academic qualification, Asian students are much less likely to be admitted relative to uh, white or black students, especially relative to black students. They are, uh, if an Asian student is in the 70th percentile of the population of applicants, they have a single digit, less than 5% chance of getting admitted to Harvard in the data that were uh, uh, revealed through discovery. If a black student is in that range, they have a 30 or 40% chance of getting admitted to Harvard. If an Asian student is in the top 10% of applicants, they have like a 10 or 12% chance of getting admitted to Harvard. A black student has like a 40% chance of getting admitted to Harvard if they show up with the same qualifications. So th these Asian students are being discriminated against. Harvard claimed, no, academics is not all we're concerned about. True enough, the Asians are strong academically, but on the personal rating, they don't do nearly as well. And we're not really discriminating against them. We're simply weighting the personal as well as the academic. Well, pardon me if that sounds like uh, a, a subterfuge, if it sounds like an excuse. Are you really telling me that the same kids who can ace the test are kids who can't pre uh, present themselves in a conversation and make themselves interesting or whatever? I mean, I'm supposed to believe that because they're Asian, they're dull? They, they, they lack leadership potential? I mean, what kind of stereotype is that? So uh, discrimination across the board, and uh, the court has had enough of it. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology, and it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. I wonder if um, another one of the issues with affirmative action is that it actually ended up detracting from social questions, the question of why certain um, inequalities might exist in society in terms of educational achievement. So if you think about why is it that some African-American students pre-university are not getting those SAT scores or are not perhaps um, studying in the same way that Asian-Americans are encouraged to study and achieving those kind of incredibly high scores? Surely that speaks to uh, certain social problems, certain cultural problems, problems within communities, which may well spring from socioeconomic conditions, uh, lots of other factors that may impact on the question of why African-American students are not achieving the kind of results that one might expect. So you say, for example, at Brown, uh, once this uh, uh, decision comes into action, the percentage of African-American students may well fall from around 12% to 4%. So the question of why they're not achieving pre-university in high school or even before high school, that kind of gets brushed aside, doesn't it, by the creation of the affirmative action policy to give them that leg up when they get to the university age. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, my piece for the Manhattan Institute's City Journal on this subject is called Affirmative Distraction. And, and my argument is, you know, the real problem here is the massive 
disparity in the distribution of accomplished intellectual ability to perform the work of the college between the racial groups. Uh, and you're, you're coming to the tail end of the development process. You're dealing with people as they're about to go into the university and you're trying to remedy something that really begins at birth and has more to do with the quality of educational services provided to the kids and with the nature of home life and with cultural factors, which are very difficult to talk about. People are quite sensitive about this. They, it's it's uh, almost as verboten as the suggestion that there's some kind of genetic or you know biological difference between racial groups, which I'm not making here. I'm not making that suggestion at all. But I'm saying to say that a home life, how many hours are spent studying, what, what the peer groups value, uh, how much pressure are parents putting on students to perform in uh, academic work? Uh, what kind of choices are people making about how they use their time? Uh, things of this kind. To invoke those things is to invite uh, vitriolic uh, repudiation by people who will, in effect, say you're, you're claiming that African-Americans are inferior. Um, I think a couple of things here. One thing I think is there's no reason to expect groups to come out equal at every endeavor. That, that This is a point that Thomas Sowell, the great economist, uh, in his 90s now, uh, we won't have him for long. Uh, I hate to say that, but come on, let's. we live in the real world here. He's a great man. And he has made this point over and over again in uh, his books about race and inequality throughout the world, which is that everywhere you look, you see disparities in the rates of the penetration into desirable pursuits in business and academics and the professions and so on between various ethnic groups, whether it's the ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, whether it's the Igbo in Nigeria or the Jews just about everywhere, uh, or the Asian immigrants that we're seeing here in the United States. And it, it, this is not to be unexpected. If groups are different, if, if, if groups are worth distinguishing among in terms of their orientation, their identities, their, their habits and practices, their values and beliefs, their culture, then we should expect that we would see differences in their the, the product of the development of people in terms of what their interests are and, and, and where they apply their God-given talents and how they spend their time. And that's going to redound to, uh, you know, whether it's the professional sports, whether it's in entertainment, whether it's in the law, whether it's in medicine, uh, whatever, we, we see these disparities. So disparities are, are not ipso facto uh, a, a reflection of some kind of unfairness or some kind of social problem that needs to be remedied. Uh, and, hence, and hence, setting parity as your ideal uh, is a kind of artificial goal, and, and it requires overriding the, the forces that otherwise might be at play. It's, it's, it's a fool's errand. Uh, I think, uh, and it invites a kind of tyranny. It invites an undermining of the foundation of the liberal order in which we judge people on the merits of what they do uh, as we try to manufacture uh, an unnatural outcome. Um, yeah, I, I, I really agree with that. And uh, I, I did want to ask you about the disruptive impact this might have um, that you mentioned earlier, because one thing that I was thinking is, obviously there will be an impact and you've outlined what that impact might be in terms of admissions and so on. Uh, but at the same time, 
hasn't the the new racialism, the kind of new politics of race, hasn't it been so thoroughly institutionalized on some campuses and in some universities uh, that the even the scrapping of the affirmative action idea might not have the longer term positive impact uh, on our view of equality and our view of uh, what people are capable of because the uh, politics of race is so deeply entrenched. So I'm just thinking uh, campuses across the US and it's it's the situation here in the UK now as well. The ideology of white privilege is widespread. Um, the idea that one must judge by colour rather than character is has been virtually institutionalised in terms of, you know, you must acknowledge black pain, you must um, confess to white privilege. You know, there have even been some universities in the US where expecting students to spell correctly or to use the proper grammar uh, or to keep to time to be punctual is now seen as as too much of an imposition on African-American students. Apparently, it's not in their culture to follow those kinds of rules. And of course, across the Anglo-American world, we've seen decolonization of curricula, where uh, Chaucer is removed and Milton is removed and Shakespeare is removed, because why should students have to read so many white men? So you have all these ideas, you will be very, very familiar with all of them. Won't that continue? And and won't that also have a pernicious impact on the idea of equality on the campus, I guess? Well, it's certainly true that that will continue. And it's deeply entrenched. And it's not just ideas. It's also personnel and institutional structures that have evolved. The diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging movement here in uh, higher education in the United States is well advanced. Uh, I expect that... Um, the liberal establishment in American higher education will resist in one way or another the imposition of this new regime on their activities. They will be looking for workarounds. We're already seeing that to some degree. My prediction, 12% to 4%, and those were very rough numbers, not scientific estimates, but not crazy numbers, is premised on a straightforward and naive response of the universities to what the court has said, which is they simply stop discriminating by race. And if they did, something like what I described is what would happen. My guess, though, is that they're going to look for indirect ways to discriminate by race. Here's one. We no longer require the scholastic aptitude test from our uh, applicants as a condition of application. You can submit a test score if you like, and we'll take it on board, but you're not required to submit a test score, and we'll vet your application with or without. Well, there's nothing on his face that's racial about that statement. That's applying to everybody. On the other hand, in virtue of the fact that lower performance on the exams is one of the main reasons why one sees an overrepresentation of Asians relative to Blacks in the admissions process, getting rid of the exam as a condition of application is an indirect boost to the prospects of Blacks being admitted. They don't have to reveal on average, their lower, their lower exam scores. And there are many things that are like that. You, you could say, if you're a state university, there's certain geographic districts in my state that I want to foster the development of uh, for the long-term well-being of the people of the state of Illinois or the state of California. Zip codes then could be used as a condition, one of the factors that influence the admissions decision if the populations racially are spread in a somewhat uneven manner across the zip code uh, de uh, geographic designations, 
by saying certain areas are going to get a special uh, treatment in our admissions process, again, you will not have done something that's explicitly racial, but you will have indirectly uh, increased the prospects that uh, black applicants from those designated geographic areas would, would be admitted. So, so there are many things like that, and I expect that they will go on. But I see political backlash looming here in the United States, maybe given the character of the United States as a, I don't know, more friendly to a conservative social policy than some other places. I don't know. You could tell me about the UK or Canada, Australia. But but I see, I see backlash brewing. Um, I think the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, critical race theory, racist everything, structural racism movement has peaked. Uh, I, I expect that uh, this is not the last shoe to drop here. There, there are many other, I mean, for example, in employment, the companies, their personnel departments, they, they, they want to advertise that they have a diverse workforce uh, as a part of their marketing strategy and their brand management and so on like that. If they're discriminating by race in the applications process that now, given the new dispensation that the court has created with this most recent ruling, becomes uh, a uh, opportunity for a legal entrepreneur to bring lawsuits. They have to find plaintiffs, they have to get cases, but the, the door is open for further litigation in that direction. And that's, this is not the, the only thing. Now, uh, in the voting rights area, for example, where the Voting Rights Act of 1965 as amended and extended uh, basically requires drawing uh, political districts for the U.S. Congress in a way that maximizes the likelihood of blacks being elected, especially in the southern states, uh, has come under some review and revision. Uh, and there's more that's likely in that direction to, to, to come along. Uh, so... I mean, we'll see. We'll see what the, the long term uh, brings. But the fact that these were not white plaintiffs, these were Asian plaintiffs in this case, the, the, the society is so dynamic. There are half again as many Hispanics as there are blacks in the United States of America. The Asians are about seven or eight percent and the number is growing. Um, I, I don't think, you know, in 10 or 15 years, the tenor of this conversation is going to be anything like what it is right now. I think that the, the diversocrats, while they do hold the upper hand at the moment, have a relatively weak position. Uh, so I, I, I expect further pushback. So on, on that question of the diversocrats and the upper hand, I think that's, that's an interesting one. I, di I did want to ask you about another instance of special treatment which came not from um, a university campus, but from the White House itself. So this is Joe Biden. And I, I wanted to get your views on, on Joe Biden's attitude towards racial questions. So he famously or infamously, however one might choose to look at it, he'd said that his, um, his pick for the Supreme Court would be a woman of colour. And, and it was. It was Kadanji Brown Jackson. And I wanted to know what you made of that, what, what your view of that was. I mean, firstly, it suggests that the, um, the ethos of affirmative action or the ethos of special treatment is pretty widespread and it moves right up to the toppermost echelons of American society. 
But at the same time, I want to get your views on on what you think this question of representation is about today, because there is this obsession with representation, with everybody, every institution, every organization being um, perfectly representative of, of society itself. What do you think drives that uh, impulse? And do you think it's a positive one? Uh, no, I don't think it's a positive one. Uh, I think there's a historical argument that at a point in time, perhaps, but I, but I think the country moves on. But let me address the, the primary question. So Biden announces that he's going to appoint a black woman or a woman of color to the Supreme Court. He could have just appointed. He didn't have to announce it. I mean, think about what the prior announcement means. It means he's restricted his attention to uh, single digit, maybe 3% of all eligible legal uh, scholars and practitioners in the country are black women. And that number may be high. I, I actually don't know the number offhand, but, you know, women are half of blacks. Blacks are uh, 12% of the population, so that's 6% but the women are not pursuing the law at the same level and so on and so forth. So you, you've already restricted your, now there's a dare built into that. They dare you to observe as Ilya Shapiro did. This is the legal scholar who said, the Democrats would be better off if they appointed the most qualified legal mind to the court, because that's the person who's gonna have to write the, the dissenting opinions when this conservative court comes down as it will come down against the things that we believe. Instead, they're going to appoint, he, Shapiro said, and I quote him, a lesser black woman. All he did was observe that if you restrict your attention to 3% of the pool of eligible people and then make a selection, chances are the person that you pick is not going to be the most qualified person for the post. That's all he did. Uh, for that, again, Georgetown Law Center, he was uh, running a, a center for the study of constitutional law at, at Georgetown, or he was appointed to that position. And they rescinded the appointment. He was put on leave, uh, peremptorily, because he made the quote unquote racist observation that you're now appointing the most qualified person to the court. So there's a dare that's built into that. There's also a pander. He's pandering to black people. He's saying, vote for me, support me, and I'll advance your interests as if the color of the person sitting among nine on the Supreme Court somehow paralleled African-American interests as, as if we were so childish that we measured our interests based upon this phony, superficial, cosmetic, representational uh, thing that you're talking about, as opposed to, look, your rights are guaranteed by the Constitution. The Constitution is under assault by the conservatives. I'm going to put a person in the in the breach who is going to be most effective at representing your interests, period, full stop. Whoever, whatever kind of person that is, as long as they are most effective at representing. Instead of saying that, he said, no, we're going to appoint a black woman. So he's pandering. Um, I would much have preferred... If his intention was to diversify the court, there's uh, only one African-American when Ketanji Brown-Jackson is appointed. He's Clarence Thomas. He's served for decades. He's a conservative. You want another black on the court that he simply have gone ahead and appointed her without having uh, all of the fanfare. But I think the theory of representation that you allude to, the idea that having in common with somebody the color of skin is a it vouchsafes 
the the uh, fact that that person will represent my interests is is ridiculous. I, I mean, I, I think it's a very superficial uh, understanding of of, uh, of representation. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Another aspect of uh, the Biden approach to race, which I think is very interesting, is the question of the good African-American and the bad African-American, uh, who is really black and who isn't actually black. So if you think about Biden's famous statement, which was slightly off the cuff, but, you know, still it does haunt him where he said, if you are if you don't know whether to vote for me or Trump, then you ain't really black. Um, but I'm also thinking you mentioned Clarence Thomas there. And of course, um, he is seen by lots of people. I mean, he is he has openly been referred to as an Uncle Tom and particularly following the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, which uh, he was in favour of of uh, removing Roe v. Wade, um, he was subjected to the most extraordinary racist abuse on social media. I mean, I'm not going to say some of the things that were said here, but it, it involved the word field and then another word uh, after it and house and uh, so on. Um, so that's a contradiction too, isn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, Justice Brown is seen as a wonderful addition. She will she will genuinely represent the African-American experience. But Clarence Thomas is seen as uh, a, a false representation or, or not real. Maybe he's not really black. How do you interpret those kinds of discussions about who gets to count as representative and who doesn't? Yeah, I, this is another bone of contention for me in the uh, current debate. Uh, Justice Thomas is as black as any person you're likely ever to meet. And I don't just mean the color of his skin. I mean, his biography. I mean, he, he is coming up from poverty and the margins of society uh, from a thoroughly culturally African-American background, uh, making his way up the ladder of uh, legal professional success and finally ending up on the Supreme Court. Um, and he served there with distinction for decades. He happens to be a conservative and at the root of this uh, phenomenon of calling him a field inward or a house inward or a betrayal, an Uncle Tom or whatever, at the root of it is the view that his conservatism, his principal uh, stand on how the Constitution is to be interpreted. I'm not a legal scholar, but my understanding of his position is you look to see what the people who framed the Constitution had in mind when they framed it, and you remain faithful to that. You don't evolve the Constitution based upon whatever the latter-day sensibilities might be and find in the document uh, justification for whatever your uh, latter-day fanciful position might be. You stay true to the intentions of the framers. That's my understanding of his position. It's a position held by many legal scholars, in including Justice Antonin Scalia, including Judge Robert Bork, who was unfortunately not confirmed to the court when he was appointed in the 1980s, but it's a perfectly respectable tradition of constitutional interpretation. The man's a conservative. He can be a conservative and still be black. Hell, I'm a conservative and I'm black. Call me an N-word if you like. That doesn't cancel the authenticity of my life. 
neither with Clarence Thomas. It's the cheapest of cheap shots. It's ad hominem in the extreme. It's a, a reflection of the intellectual bankruptcy of, of the faction who would respond to Thomas's magisterial opinion in concurrence with Justice Roberts in this most recent Supreme Court case on affirmative action by calling him a name, uh, by impugning his motive. Uh, it, with respect to his, um, he made a comment uh, and an aside in his opinion uh, in the uh, case that overturned the Roe versus Wade, the abortion case that overturned the Roe versus Wade decision. He made a comment saying that based on the doctrinal logic of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you don't have a right to abortion in the Constitution. Leave it to the states. That's what the court decided. He said, we might have to revisit some other cases, like the one that legalized gay marriage. People said, well, he's married to a white woman. He didn't say that they were going to revisit the case that legalized interracial marriage. As if the man's judgment about our Constitution turned on such a personal matter as I'll take the gays' rights away, but I won't take my right away. I have a right to marry across the racial line, but they don't have to have a right to marry within the, the gender line, uh, which re reduces him to a, a, something despicable, frankly, if that were the motive for someone acting in shaping our law. And there's no warrant for that. There, there's nothing in the historical record justifying that diminution of Justice Thomas. So, you know, I take exception. I mean, people get to think for themselves. This goes all the way back to the uh, famous speech that he made uh, during his confirmation hearings in 1991 when he was accused of uh, sexual impropriety with Anita Hill. Uh, and he thought that, and I agreed with him at the time and still do, that the whole, that whole brouhaha was a manufactured subterfuge to try to keep him off the court because he's a conservative black man by you know, making a mountain out of a molehill uh, with respect to the incident between him and Anita Hill. But he said, uh, I'm an uppity black who thinks for myself and y'all therefore have to have a high tech lynching. And uh, the, the racial liberals are angry with him for invoking lynching. I will only say that it was rhetorically effective. Uh, he wasn't being lynched, of course, but he was being hung out to dry. He was being character assassinated uh, he was having his career, uh, the effort to destroy his career. And why? Because he thought for himself and he's still thinking for himself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very well put. Following on from that, I wanted to ask you about the rehabilitation of, of not only racial thinking, but racism. So you've just mentioned there um, some of the abuse that someone like Clarence Thomas gets um, you get abused too, of course. Um, so does John McWhorter and, and other people in, in your circles. Um, but also I'm thinking of, we've mentioned already the discrimination against Asian American students, which is a form of racial discrimination. Uh, I'm also thinking about something like Whoopi Goldberg's recent comments on the Holocaust and the question of race which I did want to get your thoughts on because it seemed to me quite extraordinary that she would say something like, well, you know, this was just whites fighting whites. It, it wasn't a racial question, which suggests to me a very narrow understanding of the history of racial politics and the history of racial, uh, the racialization of human beings. Um, but in different ways, it does seem like people have more leeway now to express racist ideas or at least racially questionable ideas 
but they presented as being anti-racist. They presented as being politically correct, being right on, being part of the correct thinking set. Are you worried about the way in which um, the re-racialization of, of modern America is, is quite naturally giving rise to the expression of racist sentiments in, in various different ways? Well, I think there's, there is anti-white racism built into some of these, uh, the more extreme positions taken by some of these activists. Uh, the Black Lives Matter types who, who say that white people are somehow responsible for all the ills in the world and who, who are um, hostile uh, to uh, whites making efforts to defend their interests. I mean, you could say blacks are doing this or that. You can't say whites are doing this or that. Whites acting in concert. They want to capitalize B for black because blacks are a people, but they don't want to capitalize W for whites because, well, whites as a people, that's a that's a racist concept. And somehow it escapes their attention that, the, you know, that's a symmetric observation. Blacks as a people is also a racist concept. Uh, they, they, they will make a, a federal case out of a white police officer treating harshly in a physical encounter a black citizen. Uh, but when the same kind of treatment befalls a white citizen, it will go, it will go unremarked, uh, even though that happens uh, far more frequently because there are far more whites than there are blacks in the country. Uh, they'll make a racial issue out of something that needn't have, have been a racial issue at all. I, let me just use the George Floyd murder. George Floyd in Minneapolis, a man knelt on his neck. He expired. Uh, was that a racial incident? Well, George Floyd is black and the man kneeling on his neck is white. Uh, I don't get from that 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 was a racial incident unless you tell me more, unless you tell me that the man kneeling on the neck had an enmity toward the guy that got killed because the guy was black. There's no evidence to that effect. So, uh, and I, I do I do worry about this, the resurgence of racism as a concomitant to the upsurge of this uh, anti-racist movement. I had a piece in Quillette, uh, Unspeakable Truths About uh, Race in America, where I, I basically pointed out, if I were a white person and I were constantly being bludgeoned by activists telling me about how my uh, being white and other white people are responsible for all the ills in the world. I might pull out a sheet of paper and just make a list of what it is that white people have contributed to modern civilization. And I might ask people to, you know, who are trying to make me feel badly about being white, where's your civilization? Now, now of course, to do that would be, quote unquote, racist. Uh, on the other hand, that kind of backlash, uh, I think, is invited by the smug, self-satisfied, supercilious, arrogant, uh, know-it-all kind of posture that that these that people are uh, who are the leading spokespersons for the anti-racist movement take. Uh, and you know, we'll see what happens, but uh, I think the jury is not yet in uh, on that. I, I don't think it's a winning hand. I, I don't think if I'm mayor of Chicago, and I, I know I'm going on, but just allow me this. And uh, kids, black kids, come out of the housing projects and the tenements and the low-income neighborhoods uh, on the west side and the south side of the city, and they mass in the center city where the tourists come, and they chase tourists out of restaurants and rob them. 
and they exchange gunfire with one another and so on. And, and they turn over uh, police vehicles and they commandeer public buses um, and, and so on. And they're black. Uh, I, I don't think that the typical middle class resident, whatever their ethnicity uh, of uh, Chicago, observing that, fails to notice that they're black. Now, you can't have a newspaper editorial saying the blacks are running amok in Chicago. We got to do something about it. But you can have a kitchen table conversation in which exactly that is said. And enough of those conversations adds up to contempt. Uh, it, it adds up to hostility uh, that is suppressed, but that is very, very real. Uh, so, uh, again, I'm, I'm of the view that they're overplaying, they being the racial liberals, are overplaying their hand. Uh, the, 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 the prosecutors, some of them in office because of support from George Soros, who made a big deal through his Open Society Foundation of fostering the careers of so-called progressive prosecutors and who have come into city after city around the country and rolled back the intensity of uh, law enforcement in the interest of mitigating the racial disparities of incarceration are not long for this world. Uh, I, I, I don't think you can have the murder rate where it is, the carjacking rates where they are, the, the robberies and uh, incivil behavior, uncivil behavior of people such as it is, and uh, have that stick. I think they're in a uh, precarious position. It'll sound like I'm hoping for the backlash. Frankly, I'm not. I'm not because it could get very ugly. Uh, but this is not a stable situation, in my opinion. Just on that question of um, attacking white people, and you talk there about the potential backlash to that, you know, um, I'm, I'm just thinking about the rise of white re-education in the workplace, uh, the idea of white privilege and the idea that one must always self-flagellate for one's white privilege. And then you have figures like Robin DiAngelo, who you've spoken about before, whose, whose book on white fragility seems to me to be essential reading for every capitalist boss. It's, you know, corporations that want to do some uh, race training or race awareness training often wheel out um, her material, her book, as a way of saying to white workers, essentially, you have certain privileges, you need to correct them, you need to uh, fix the way you speak to people from other racial groups. Um, I just wanted to ask you what you think lies behind that movement, what you think lies behind authors like Robin DiAngelo and, and the white people who promote her work, because I'm torn between thinking that it's self-loathing or self-promotion, whether they're actually signaling their virtue through pretending to be full of vice. What's the kind of what's what's the truth of those kinds of uh, the white self-loathing that's become quite fashionable? Well, I don't know. I'm I'm uh, bemused and befuddled by the whole phenomenon. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I mean, my my guess is that it's an instrument of signaling virtue. That, that this is the formula, this is the way in which for corporation, uh, they, they want to keep peace among their employees. They want to maintain their brand with their customers and counterparties and so on. Uh, they they want to have values, a corporation with values. I'm, you know, as soon as I hear that, I hold my wallet. A corporation with values. I, you know, I'm, I'm of the old school. I'm an economist by training. I'm from the old school. And what corporations do is maximize profits. They're in business to make money. 
It turns out, however, that one way that you can further your financial interests is to cultivate a certain kind of uh, image uh, with your uh, potential uh, customers and uh, employees. And so you, you know, you signal your virtue by embracing this kind of uh, D'Angelo-like stuff. Um, my, my sense of it, there's a literature the sociologists uh, have uh, have looked into a little bit about the effectiveness of the diversity training stuff. And my, my understanding is that as often as not, it makes things worse, not better, to uh, railroad your employees into this kind of uh, groupthink, uh, thought control kind of thing. And, and these sessions are not real open sessions for the discussion of delicate and complex issues, but instead they're indoctrination. They're struggle sessions where, you know, you have to affirm a predetermined way of looking at things. So I'll say this, uh, that the civil rights movement in the mid 20th century, the second uh, third of the 20th century was a historical turning of the wheel in which African-Americans were ushered into the status of full and equal citizenship in the country after a century from the end of slavery. Um, And it created a problem. The problem is the inequalities that preexisted were there, but the opportunity for achievement for African-Americans in an unprecedented way was presented. Now, I'm Black and I care about Black people. I love Black people. But we have not fully measured up to that challenge. There is failure here. 70% of uh, babies born to a black woman are born to a woman without a husband. The homicide rate is an order of magnitude higher uh, in uh, black urban black communities than it is in comparable white communities. The uh, level of academic achievement, I'm not talking about college. I'm talking about how well you read and count as an eighth grader or an 11th grader, is there's a three or four year difference on average in the level of academic achievement of public school students who are black in this country as compared to whites. I'm not even mentioning the Asians. Um, It's not only failure, but it is partly failure. I'm happy to be able to uh, quote the, the writer Shelby Steele. He's the person who said this before I did, but I think he's right. The problem in the 21st century for black people is not oppression. The problem is freedom. The the problem is the ball is in our court. The the problem is what are we going to do with the opportunities? The country is dynamic. Scores of millions of immigrants have come since the civil rights era to the United States of America from non-European ports of call and they're making their lives here. They're transforming the society. And yet, You have these pockets of uh, stagnation and backwardness and underdevelopment, uh, which are disproportionately black. Of course, these are our fellow citizens. They deserve our support and our help. But the ball is in our court as African-Americans in the 21st century. And I think that is at the root of this virtue signaling mania. People don't want to acknowledge the reality of the fact of African-American underperformance. Again, I don't take any pleasure in saying this. Uh, and as a way of avoiding the implication, I mean, what does Ibram X. Kendi, he's another one of these writers with Robin D'Angelo who constitute this pantheon of anti-racism. He says, uh, if I have a disparity, he says in so many words, if I have a disparity 
uh, either it's due to racism or you are racist for thinking that it's not due to racism. You must think there's something wrong with black people. Either it's due to systemic racism or there's something wrong with black people. Well, that I think leaves out some possibilities. There may be nothing as it were wrong with black people. It may just be that we're not, we're not measuring up to the, to the challenge of the modern world. Uh, and uh, treating people seriously. I mean, this goes back to your, your question about equality. You can't have equality if people are patronizing you. To be treated seriously is to be asked, do you know where your children are at one o'clock in the morning? If you don't, my God, you are derelict in your essential responsibility as a parent. Full stop. It's asking people, look at the level of criminality in your community. I, I, I acknowledge that poverty is a factor, but poverty doesn't account for the pathology that we're seeing. It's to ask people, uh, what's the nature of social life among you that the institutions that ordinarily accomplish the extraordinary feat of transmitting from one generation to the next the norms and practices and customs and habits that allow for effective living have so broken down? Nobody wants to go there. Uh, so uh, this is my speculation. It's not something that I can prove, but I think that that's at the root of the popularity of these dodges. These are dodges from grappling with the actual situation. The, the, this thing about the cops, racist cops, rogue cops, militarized police and whatnot, they beg a, a question. They beg a question of, well, cops only show up when there's crime. It's not as if the cops have been deployed to patrol black communities and round up people at random. They're there because of the disorder in the baby, not of all, not of most, but of too many uh, in that community. Those are some very powerful questions that you've raised there, and I'm sure listeners will appreciate those. Uh, I, I have one final question for you, Glenn. Um, this won't provide the answers to all the problems that we've talked about today. Um, but I did want to get your view on what might happen in the next presidential election. The world is going to be watching. Um, the culture war is swirling in America, it seems, and in the UK too. We've got Biden uh, potentially standing again. We've got Kamala Harris not being as impressive as I think the New York Times and others expected her to be. We've got Ron DeSantis coming up. Donald Trump lurking in the sidelines. What's your view on the next presidential election and, and whether some of these questions that you raised will be answered in your direction, the direction of normal, enlightened people, or whether things might potentially get worse? How, where do you stand on that? Okay, well, I'm not an expert, so you can take it for what it's worth. Um, here's what I see. I see Trump uh, being having it being his to lose. He's, he's way ahead in the polls. And he has a very loyal base of support. Uh, I mean, Trump is a problematic presidential candidate, in my humble opinion, for reasons that we could go into, but I think they're relatively apparent. Uh, the Trump administration, four years, the 2017 to 2021, there were a lot of good things that happened, but uh, the COVID pandemic kind of put a damper on, on things. And uh, Trump didn't handle it in every respect as well as he might have. And then his refused to accept the outcome of the 2020 election. 
notwithstanding the fact that the ballot harvesting and the the kind of mail-in voting stuff, I mean, it it did create a circumstance in which legitimately you might ask, when I see the the tally swing so rapidly in the late hour in critical states, you know, was there some ballot box stuffing? Was there some ballot harvesting that went over the line? Was there whatever? You could ask that. But the court shut him down. And in my opinion, uh, he ought to have acquiesced, given that he couldn't make progress in the courts, notwithstanding the legitimacy of his concerns. I think there was reason to have legitimate concerns about the conduct of the 2020 election. But the only way we have of resolving those concerns is through the courts. And if you can't make progress in the courts, I mean, so the, the, the kind of extra judicial and extra constitutional means that he was employing in the 11th hour uh, raised some very serious questions. So, I mean, but I, but nevertheless, uh, indictments notwithstanding, Donald Trump has a commanding position in the Republican contest. I think he's going to be the nominee. Uh as far as I can tell, the Democrats don't have the stomach uh, for uh, a, a coup d'etat uh, to try to take out Joe Biden as their standard bearer. Biden won election to the presidency of the United States without ever leaving his basement in 2020. I actually don't know who's running the government of my country, to be honest with you. I assume there's a shadow uh, staffing kind of thing and decisions are somehow getting made. But I, I, I feel completely uninspired by the leadership of uh, President Biden, who's doddering and uh, feeble. Uh, he, he does not project. I mean, I, I did see the speeches that he gave in Vilnius, and they, they had his uh, caffeine up to a high level because he was energetic. But it's, it's kind of unconvincing. Kamala Harris is a joke. She's an empty suit. I mean, word salad. I, I have seen nothing from her suggesting the stature of someone who could stand in as the leader of the free world. Nothing. I can't believe that she will be the standard bearer for the Democratic Party. So it's either Trump and Biden or there is a, a palace coup and the Democratic National Committee uh, and the big donors and whatnot uh, persuade uh, Biden to make a Lyndon Johnson-like withdrawal at the 11th hour. I, I think that's un- unlikely. Right, so my guess is it's going to be Trump and Biden. Trump could win. Glenn, thank you very much. You're welcome, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.